We've often discussed something called the overview effect on this podcast, which is the term used to describe the spaceflight experience of looking back at the Earth from outer space. Well, today we talk to the author and space philosopher Frank White, who originally coined this term and has spent years studying the implications of the overview effect and what it means for us as a species. What's your favorite story from an astronaut about how it feels to look back at the Earth? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Space and Things. But right now, enjoy episode 155 of the Space and Things Podcast. flight controls and hang on here comes the space and thanks podcast with dave giles and emily carney i'm emily carney and i'm dave giles and welcome to episode 155 of our podcast how you doing emily i'm doing great how are you doing dave yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I've got a lovely scented candle on in here at the moment. I'm enjoying it. Anyway, oh, on to this sounds week's. Nice. Yeah, it's. Uh, hang on. Oh, I've just spilt the wax everywhere. That's clever. It's uh, it's <laughs> called uh, peat fire, and it's it's really really wonderful. I'm enjoying it a lot. Anyway, let's get on to this week's main feature. As we said in the intro, we have mentioned the overview effect many times on this podcast, and it's a term used to describe what happens to astronauts when they look back on Earth from space. Now, there are many stories of the profound effect it has had on people, and it seems it can be different for each person as well. Well, today we're talking to Frank White, who's coined the term. He has written many books, but his best known work is called The Overview Effect, Space Exploration and Human Evolution. It was originally published in 1987, but the fourth edition, including original interviews with 31 astronauts, came out in 2019. A film called Overview, which is inspired by the book, has millions of views on Vimeo. Frank is also the co-founder of the Overview Institute, a leading organization to analyzing the overview effect and disseminating its findings. White considers himself to be a space philosopher, so I think this is the first time we've had a space philosopher on this podcast. Anyway, let's speak to Frank White. Space and Things Mission Control wants you. Go to patreon.com forward slash space and things to join our crew. Hello, Frank. First of all, thank you for agreeing to be on our show. So on Space and Things, we love a great scene setting question. So what started your involvement in space advocacy? I suppose I should start with my interest in space exploration and astronomy, which led to my interest in space advocacy eventually. My mother gave me a book called Stars when I was around 10 years old. And it really had a huge impact on me. I guess I hadn't really thought, wow, there's a whole universe out there. And I just found it fascinating. So I suppose I started with astronomy. And then over time, I became interested in rocket science. I'd lived in Mississippi, and Verna Von Braun was over in Alabama building Mm -hmm. rockets. I wrote to him and I said, how do I become a rocket scientist? He wrote a letter saying, you should study chemistry, physics, 
math, engineering. That was the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) That's not my strong point. Then I thought maybe I could be an astronaut, but they wanted the same background. So to make a long story short, I discovered Gerard K. O'Neill in the 70s, and he had a very different view, which was he wanted everybody to get interested in what I would now call large-scale space migration. And he actually, many years ago, 50 years ago, had a plan and that was to build freestanding space communities at what are called Lagrange points between the Earth and the Moon using asteroidal material. And it really spoke to my interest, which was social science, history, government, and philosophy. I got very involved in that. That led to writing the overview effect. And I'd been an advocate of space exploration and development since. And I am an advocate of migration, large-scale space migration, because I think it's part of what will help us to restore the Earth to a balanced environmental state. And O'Neill had exactly the same idea. I've also learned that not everybody agrees with me. (laughs) And so I have to advocate for it. I have to speak on its behalf. And, you know, it's hard to do that because the vast majority of people on planet Earth don't realize that we're in space. They Mm. don't realize the Earth is in space. And what we're really talking about is moving off of the spaceship and giving it a chance to recover. So there's a lot of education that has to be done here. A lot of people share the urgency about the environmental situation on our planet, but they do not have the option of moving beyond the limits of the planet itself as a potential solution. This is what I'm really focused on today. And of course, I haven't even brought up the overview effect yet, but (laughs) we can talk about that. (laughs) It's part of the picture. Actually, while we've got you on this subject, I I think I just want to drop in a question. When you you said that there are people that are opposed to the idea uh, of space migration, what is the biggest complaint that people have about it? I would say there are two main issues. One is there's a sense of mistrust of humanity, Mm. which I understand, to be honest. The idea is, well, you're trying to escape the problems that you've created on this planet, and you're going to go to Mars and make a mess of Mars. Or you're going to the moon, you're going to make a mess of the moon. Now, I do think that's a concern. I think there must be a paradigm shift, a consciousness shift in the human species to avoid that. Just leaving planet Earth and going somewhere else does not mean we'll do a better job. And therefore, I and my colleagues really have to speak to the space community as well as the community that is skeptical about this. There's a built-in assumption that 
the solar system will become a playground for the rich. And that is a really short-sighted idea because in order to make it work well, and even to make it a business proposition, it would need to be, again, large-scale in nature. The market for elite space travel is going to be reached fairly quickly. So space for all has to be the practical and the ideal view. So that that's one of the problems. I think the other problem is that there's been a distorted view of space exploration that it is anti-environmental inherently. And so immediately when commercial space travel started, critics started calculating how much damage it was doing to the atmosphere. Okay, that's fair enough too. We we really need much less toxic fuel. But those analyses were never um, or rarely applied to air travel mm. or even to early uh, uh, government space travel. But there is a mindset that views just the physical aspect of space travel to be inherently anti-environmental. Those are the two big things I see. And these are legitimate concerns. But what I want to do, and, and my friends and colleagues want to do, we want to reach out to environmental organizations, and we want to say we're environmentalists too. Mm. Most of the people I work with were environmental to start with, and then they saw the potential benefits of migration, which incidentally is a very natural human behavior. They saw the benefits of migration and easing the burden on the planet's carrying capacity. And so they're now interested in how we can make that happen. Those are the reasons, and all of these issues can be resolved and they can be discussed, I think, rationally. And that's what we need to do. We need to have a conversation about it. All right. So you famously coined the term and phenomenon, the overview effect, which also became an iconic book chronicling astronauts' reactions and thoughts about viewing the Earth. So when did you first think about this term? And were there any conversations maybe with particular astronauts that may have gotten you to think, you know, there should be a term or something to describe this phenomenon better. It didn't happen quite that way, actually. What happened was that I was thinking about Jerry O'Neill's ideas. I was deeply involved in the Space Studies Institute. I was flying cross-country and looking out at the Earth. And if anybody wants to get a taste of the overview effect, you can do it for the price of a plane ticket. You're going to have to sit by the window, though. <laughs> I know a lot of people don't want to do that. However, I was doing that. It was a long flight. I was looking out, and I slipped into sort of a, I don't know if I'd call it an altered state, but a flow state, you might say. And I had this idea, oh, my goodness, people living in an O'Neill community would always have an overview of the Earth. They would see it as a whole system. Everything's connected. Everything's related. And this is what 
spiritual teachers have been trying to tell us and philosophers and even modern systems theorists, it's a whole system and it can't be treated as parts. They will experience the overview effect and that literally happened in maybe five minutes. So I had an experience of my own about an experience of people in the future. (laughs) And of course, those people still don't exist. I'm trying to create that future now. (laughs) So when I landed, it it occurred to me, well, what am I going to do? Maybe astronauts would be good proxies for these future people. And I call NASA Public Affairs, and I boldly stated that I needed to interview the entire astronaut corps. That generated a chuckle. The guy at the other end of the phone line said, well... The astronauts are pretty busy. I can't really have all of them be interviewed. (laughs) If you come to Houston, I think I could set up interviews with two astronauts. Of course, I was grateful for that and turned out to be two great interviews. But of course, that's not a very big sample size. And then he said, why don't you talk to retired astronauts? Remarkably, I hadn't thought of that. And he (laughs) said, you know, they can say what they want. And they can be interviewed by anybody. And therefore, it would be fine to do that. So I started networking within my community and I started interviewing retired astronauts. I went to Houston. I interviewed two active astronauts. And that became the basis for the book. But the point of it is it wasn't about astronauts. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of funny in retrospect, now it's all about astronauts. And the hypothesis changed a bit because I didn't think the space people would consider what they were seeing remarkable. Oh, there's the earth. You know, I'm glad it's still there. Well, I got to go to work. I'm just imagining somebody in an O'Neill community, just like I don't consider it remarkable to see the moon at night. I would consider it remarkable if it weren't there. (laughs) But the astronauts found it remarkable when they went into orbit or went on a suborbital hop or even went to the moon, what they saw caused the paradigm shift because they, they experienced this reality of who we are and where we are in the universe. And the earth really is a spaceship. And Increasingly, astronauts are talking about it as a living thing, as an organism, because unlike the space people, I imagined, the astronauts, like us, were born on planet Earth. They always came back to planet Earth. None of them lived off the planet for more than a year. So their reaction was different. And in an interesting way, what the overview effect is came to be slightly different now someone will have the opportunity to see what happens with permanent space dwellers and i hope somebody will build on that work because that would be very very interesting Mm. this again is an environmental consciousness mostly most of the astronauts who come back they're more humanitarian they're more concerned about war and peace. They've seen the futility of it. They see the the planet must be protected. 
they have a heightened environmental consciousness. And as to which astronauts have had the biggest impact on me, it's really hard to say. Edgar Mitchell certainly did. He had a remarkable experience coming back from the moon that was actually more than the overview effect in a way. I called it the universal insight. He felt himself connected to the entire universe. Wow. Since then, I've interviewed many uh, NASA astronauts who spent time on the space station, like Nicole Stott and others who have had extended time to look at the Earth. And it clearly deepens that understanding of the overview effect. Now, just to close this particular answer, it's been remarkable that I've been interviewing astronauts who are commercial astronauts who have flown on Blue Origin. And to my surprise, they only had suborbital hops, but many of them had remarkable, profound, and powerful experiences. And what we're seeing is that you don't even really have to go into orbit to experience the overview effect. And this is a good thing because we need more people to have that consciousness before we move farther off the planet. And we need to bring the overview effect down to Earth to help repair the planet itself. So everything I'm talking about, I want to keep emphasizing it's environmental in nature as much as it is space exploration in nature. Has there ever been someone you've interviewed who's question the idea of there being an overview effect or does all the evidence point to that that all anyone who travels to space experiences these kind of thoughts or this kind of change well in terms of my interviews no i have talked to other people who have gotten let's say tepid responses from astronauts so i went to johnson space center a second time the first time I went was 1985, and that's when I interviewed Don Lynn and Jeff Hoffman, the two that were uh, given to me by public affairs. I went back in 2019. I interviewed 10 astronauts, three of whom were actually on the International Space Station at the time. Those interviews turned into something called Down to Earth. It's a NASA series of interviews with astronauts about their experiences. Other people picked up on what I had started. And I've just heard in passing that some of the astronauts did not seem to have a very profound reaction. Now, what's interesting about that to me is something Edgar Mitchell said, which I've quoted many, many times. And he said, everybody's had the same experience, but it's processed through the belief system. It's processed through the person's history. And if you're not open to the experience, you're not going to have that paradigm shift, you know? And so openness is really a critical variable. And we saw that with William Shatner. Shatner mm -hmm. came out of the Blue Origin capsule. His mind was blown. He was crying. He had a powerful experience. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't a NASA astronaut. 
he had an idea. He'd heard about the overview effect. He had an idea of how it would affect him, but it didn't affect him that way. And he was really overwhelmed by it. But I attribute that to being open to the experience in a way. But there's one other guy worth mentioning. It's in my book. Lauren Acton flew. He was a payload specialist. That meant he was not a NASA astronaut. He went, I believe, to launch a satellite that his company owned. I, I think I have that right. And he told me, he said, I was so worried I was going to do it wrong. I really missed the whole experience. I really did. I just don't think I got it. Well, he's the anti-Shatner. And he's very honest about it, right? But he said, well, when I came back, people kept asking me, how was it? And I knew that I was supposed to see the atmosphere as being very thin. And yeah, I did see that. So I said, the atmosphere is very thin. And I knew that I was supposed to see it as a whole system. And I did. So I said, yeah, it's a whole system. The problem is some people have taken that and they've said, see, a lot of people don't experience the overview effect. Well, that's not exactly what happened. Lauren was pretty honest about it. He didn't experience what he expected. He was so focused on his job, he didn't really have any experience that would be considered significant. But he had to answer questions when he came back. And he felt like, yeah, well, the atmosphere was thin, so I can say that honestly. So, I mean, unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, when you have a hypothesis and you put it out into the world, people are going to, they're going to test it, say, well, what about this and what about that? But I go back to Mitchell. I think everybody does experience it to some degree, but it may not be as profound for everyone. And you can go to church and you can feel like you experience God mm. and cry and be moved. Or you can go to church and look around and say, look at these ridiculous people. <laughs> they believe in something they can't see. And it's the same building and quote unquote, the same experience, but people come out of it differently. So what we really have coming up is a lot of people on Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin and Space Perspective who are going and they do want to experience the overview effect. And it's going to be fascinating what happens with them. I can't predict it, but I'm going to try to document it. Yeah, I, I guess the hard thing is, is managing hype, right? Yeah. The ultimate test of, of this would be to have someone who's never even heard of spaceflight or the overview effect and send them up without realizing what they might be about to experience but that can't happen everyone now goes expecting to experience something or see the world in a different way in, in some degree right so i guess it's managing that expectation it's all my fault <laughs> yeah <laughs> Absolutely. i don't know what to do about that yeah the mercury astronauts and the early Soviet cosmonauts, they were the best test case mm. of this lack of preparation. 
they didn't know what to expect. And the lunar astronauts, the Apollo astronauts, many of them had very big, profound experiences. And you have to understand, going to the moon is dramatically different from going into orbit because it's the difference between being 220 miles above the surface or 240,000 miles away. They didn't know what to expect. And more than one said, we went to the moon, but we discovered the earth. And so, yeah, we do have the hype. And yet, I still think it's going to be a valuable experience for people. Many of them will go with expectations, but still have those expectations strengthened. Some of the astronauts have compared it to going to the Grand Canyon. And they say, well, I'd heard about the Grand Canyon. I knew it was profoundly mm. beautiful, but that's nothing like going there. Yeah, And I myself experienced that. I went to the Grand Canyon largely because I'd heard astronauts talk about it. And hearing about it is not like going there. And I happen to be a big fan of Paris. I love Paris as a city, and I'll go there anytime. And you can read about Paris, you can watch film about Paris, but you really won't understand Paris. So yeah, it is a challenge. And again, I've been asked many times, well, uh, what are you going to say if people just get used to the overview effect and it doesn't have a big impact? And I'll say, that's what I was talking about at the beginning. It will just become part of our consciousness, right? It's okay. And then the other thing to think about is that space exploration will continue to change consciousness. People who go to Mars are not going to have the same experience. They're going to have more of what I call the Copernican perspective, which is more of an understanding of our place within the solar system because they really won't see the Earth except as a little dot of light. That is going to change their consciousness pretty significantly. Yeah, that's for sure. Anyway, we've had a question from one of our patron subscribers, Alex Stryker, who asked, can the overview effect and the appreciation of life be compared to the feelings people have after they've survived a life-threatening disease or experience? Some of these survivors also talk in similar ways about how it positively changed their perspective on life. In some cases, maybe the whole ride into space and back also feels life-threatening and can we attribute those feelings to, to some of what is the overview effect? Yes, I think that is possible. I recall on two occasions I've spoken about the overview effect. And what I've spoken about is the sense that it's hard to communicate. And on two occasions, combat veterans came up to me afterward and said, I know what you're talking about. I just can't communicate what it's like to be in combat to a person who hasn't done that. Mm. And it's just very, very difficult. I think, too, that near-death experiences have been frequently compared to the overview effect in that they're really profound and they usually cause a change in how people approach 
their lives afterward. And yet, it's not easy to explain. It can be described. People do describe near-death experiences, but the reality of what it's like is difficult to communicate. And I would think other experiences like a life-threatening illness or something like that, which you survive, I believe it is similar. Perhaps the greatest similarity is it's an experience and words don't really capture it. My son Josh and I are writing a book on Zen Buddhism and the overview effect. Oh, wow. He is a Zen Buddhist. He's a Zen master, actually. And uh, it's very interesting to compare the two. And I have jokingly said it's kind of like this. When I interview astronauts, they say, well, it can't really be described in words. And then they try to do that because, <laughs> yeah. of course, they're being kind and I asked, and so they try to do it. And every Zen master that you ever listen to or read about says, well, enlightenment cannot be described in words. It's beyond words. And then they write books. <laughs> so everything that's profound, I think, in life is probably beyond words. And yet we're communicating animals. We want people to understand it. So we do our best. The astronauts do it out of a sense of responsibility. So many of them say, this is something I just couldn't keep to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm obligated to do what I can to share it because it really is a message for all of humanity. What happens is you see the earth in space and from space. And you see how we really exist. We live on a tiny ball of life against the backdrop of this immense cosmos. We're very lucky to be here. Rather a miracle that we are here. And we just don't experience it on a daily basis. I don't know if you're familiar with Plato's cave. But quite a few people have compared the overview effect to Plato's cave. Plato was talking really about people of his time not understanding reality. He wasn't talking about the overview effect, but about reality itself. And he said, it's like being in a cave and people are chained to their seats. They're staring at a wall and there's a fire burning and it casts, a it casts light on the wall, and there are people behind them marching back and forth, and they are making, they are creating images of animals and people, and they are essentially doing a play, and the people sitting there call that reality, this puppet play on, on the wall. And then one person breaks away and leaves the cave, goes outside, sees the sun, sees the world as it really is. And of course, he feels like he has to go back and tell them. Mm. Plato said people will either not believe him or they might even kill him because they don't want to hear that. Mm. They're okay with decay. And 
I've also compared it to the mythical explorer fish. We, we do think that when fish first flopped up on land, they started an evolutionary journey that led to humans. Now, I've imagined the explorer fish going back into the water and say, hey, there's this thing called land out there. I mean, <laughs> it's really kind of amazing. And, and I want to tell you all about it. And the other fish say, don't we have enough problems here in the ocean that we don't need to hear about land? Well, yeah, but I mean, we could become something greater than we are. And it's reality. It's the truth. The ocean is not everything. Yeah, why don't you just try to be a better fish and don't worry about <laughs> land? <laughs> but I think that's what it's like. And I also think the explorer fish couldn't have ma- imagined us sitting here talking about mm. it. And it's not just a myth. I mean, there was there were explorer fish. But we try to speculate about the future of humanity off the planet and it's hard to do because there will be biological and sociological and psychological changes and our descendants may be dramatically different from us. And yet I believe they will come to exist in the future. Mm. All right. So our final question, uh, getting back to your uh, advocacy, you talked earlier about creating this future of, of mass migration to space and, and space communities. So tell us a little bit about your nonprofit, the Human Space Program. Although a lot of people don't see the connection to the overview effect, the Human Space Program is an idea that came to me as I was finishing the first edition of the overview effect. It was so clear from listening to astronauts that exploring the universe was much too big a job for national space programs. Of course, national space programs could do part of the job, but it really needed to be a planet-wide endeavor. All of humanity needed to get involved in the human space program. And a friend of mine, Bruce Shackleton, gave me an article talking about central projects. And central projects are this idea of doing something that's really challenging and it really calls on the best energies of a society to accomplish it. And it goes on for a long period of time. And the classic example was the Gothic cathedrals, which people worked on those for years and years. And they're physical in nature, but they're also spiritual and, and they are inspiring to the people who work on them. I decided that we needed a central project called the Human Space Program that would be a thousand years long. And uh, incidentally, we're in year 23. It started in 2000, (laughs) in my mind. Uh, Actually, the nonprofit did not get incorporated until 2019. But I waited through four editions of the book for somebody to create the Human Space Program and nobody did. And I gave a talk at a reunion of mine, a college reunion, about it. And one of my classmates, Ted Fields, said, I'd like to help you with that. 
So we co-founded the Human Space Program, and it's now a 501c3 nonprofit. And our mission is to create a sustainable, ethical, inclusive human expansion into the solar ecosystem or evolution into the solar ecosystem. And the methodology will be, we will create a series of task forces who will tackle the big issues like environment, engineering, economics, governance, put together a blueprint, a plan to be followed, hopefully, by humanity. We'd like to get it adopted, you know, by the governments of the world. And then we're building a simulation model. And this model goes back to the limits of growth model that was created at MIT in the 60s and 70s. We've taken that kind of thinking and expanded it into outer space. And I'm fortunate mm. to say we have two people who worked on the limits to growth model back in the day who are helping us to create this new model. So we're going to test all of our assumptions and create alternative futures. And the great thing about this idea is, again, people from Blue Origin can help. People from the Sierra Club can help. We can get all, all kinds of people who maybe think they're on opposite sides of the fence to help create the model. And we're going to look at what would happen to the environment of Earth if we had, let's say, millions or billions of humans living and working off the planet? And we'll be able to model it. And I'm hoping we can gamify it. And that will make it accessible to people so they can actually play this game. It'll be fun, but it'll be important and educational. So that's the human space program in a, a, as briefly as I can describe it. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. This has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm working my way through the your, your book, the fourth edition of your book right now. Uh, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. The possibilities are endless of what we could talk about here. And, and, and as I'm sitting here listening, I've got so many other questions that are coming to my mind that will just take us on such tangents that, that I'm trying to restrain myself. But um, I think I think we've really given people a great um, overview of the overview effect with this interview. Pardon that. That was awful. <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, and also uh, wish you all the best with your future work and what, and what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I always uh, appreciate the opportunity here and what uh, we're doing and it really is a worldwide movement and i hope it succeeds absolutely yeah me too me too time to get your booster shot you're listening to space and things with dave giles and emily carney i don't know where to start I i've wanted to talk to frank white for years i i i'm a huge fan of his work and obviously I i've read the overview effect and i've read some of his essays and and things like that. So I wanted to talk to him for ages. And my mind, I'm just sitting here. My brain is like, for those of you who can't see me, my I'm doing a head explode sort of gesture right now. It, he's really incredible to talk to. I got a little emotional when he was talking about sort of the overview effect as it relates to, you know, people who have had life-threatening illnesses or people who've been to 
been in the service in in the military because I, I can relate to that. Like that's a weird. I, I haven't had a like threatening illness. I don't want people to think, oh my god, Emily's dying. But I've been in the military and I wasn't. I want to state I wasn't in like direct combat or anything like that. But I was on a ship. And when you're deployed, it's always in the back of your mind. You know, somebody could blow you up. You know, and when I was in uh, the coal, which was in my battle group, uh, was attacked. And it, 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 I mean, oh, wow. it was, it was really bad. And at the beginning, you know, my family was watching like CNN and stuff at the beginning, they weren't saying what ship it was. They were saying a ship in the Washington battle group. So my family was like, oh my God, did they get her? And uh, obviously they didn't, but that whole time sort of changed my perspective on a lot of stuff, you know, and I never really thought of it as being sort of a type of overview effect. I don't know. I never thought of that. It kind of blows my mind, but it does make sense. But um, if you haven't read his book yet, the iconic book about the overview effect, I believe he said it's in its fourth edition. It's really sort of a, a an essential read because it really just sort of nails it down. And uh, and like he said, not every astronaut felt that way. Like like he gave the uh, example of Acton Lauren, who was you know a payload specialist and. Like he said, it doesn't disprove the hypothesis of an overview effect. But I think the thing with Warren was he was so concerned with doing his stuff right during that mission that he didn't really allow himself to, like, enjoy it, you know? And Mm. that can happen to anybody. You know, if you go to, like, I don't know, I'm just throwing out an example here. We're not advertising Disney World, by the way. But if you go to Disney, you know, and you're more concerned with the planning aspect of it versus the having fun aspect, you're not going to have as good of a time. And I think it's more of the same thing. It doesn't disprove that the overview effect exists. It's more of just this person was so involved in, you know, I just want to get this right. I don't want to get clowned by anybody, by my colleagues, that he just didn't really allow himself to enjoy it or to experience those things because he was so just in, in deep with what he was doing. So It certainly is the case that... When I've read or when we've interviewed astronauts or, or read read accounts or in books or seen interviews, the ones that are most striking is when they're in space and they've either taken some time or they've accidentally ended up with some time to be able to look. So obviously, uh, Rusty Swikart during his EVA when the camera broke and Dave Scott had to go and get a camera and he was left with a few minutes to stand in there is one that I can think of and looking at that wasn't in the schedule because these schedules get loaded up uh, and these these people are busy and so much money has been spent and they, they are almost machines when they're up there. Um, and, and I think they feel the pressure of having to deliver the, the thing that they don't often get. I think it's different now in the ISS where you know they have time off and they've got the cupola and stuff like that. But certainly shuttle days and, and, and pre-ISS, pre-space stations when... They're there for a short period of time and they've got jobs to do. I imagine that sometimes they did forget that they were there. And also you you notice it when I'm thinking Mike Mullane's book where he spoke about the second, he's, he's not his first flight, where he really tried to make sure he embraced being in space a little bit more because he knew how precious it was. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that, that sometimes uh, in the old days they may not have had the, that time to really look and think uh, about what you're doing. So I'm trying to get my head around everything we've just heard. 
so there are many times when what is going on in my little bubble of life is the only thing that I can focus on. I live in a, I live very much in the now and with some short and medium term goals. So things that I consider long-term goals are probably a lot less long-term than I imagine. But when I'm in this little bubble, it's really hard to even imagine there is a world going on outside of it. And yet not only does it exist, it's a spaceship that's orbiting a star and we're in the middle of a huge universe. And that's a thought process which can really bog you down, I suppose. Or you can be like Frank or like the people at Think Orbital last week who think about the bigger picture and try to imagine what the future might look like, both in the time that we're going to be alive and much further into the future. And I guess I'm just super grateful. I think I said this last week, but I guess I'm just super grateful that these type of people exist to ask these bigger questions. And I enjoy being involved in these conversations, yeah. even though it's not really something I've given much thought to. Um, perhaps more than ever, it's easier to map out what the future might look like, but equally there are many great unknowns. Uh Perhaps the world needs more space philosophers. How does one become a space philosopher? That should have been a question I asked. Anyway, we're in listening to this interview. I'm thinking about futures where humans are born off planet. So maybe, maybe still in view of, of the planet. How do they view the planet when they never lived here? Does the overview effect become them looking at their spacecraft as they visit in the earth <laughs> is it the other is it the other way around and, and just also then the questions of what happens biologically when we have humans who aren't born on the planet so on and so forth like there's so many huge questions yeah. that how do people we, adapt we, to that environment biologically yeah. when they they haven't been on earth they don't know what gravity is necessarily or they don't have a concept of what gravity might be yeah. possibly or their concept is a lot different from ours yeah crazy the more you think about it the crazier it gets i'm really excited for the future but i'm also sort of like it's going to be a big learning curve for you know us from the old country which is <laughs> Earth, the old country yeah it's going to be a yeah. big uh learning curve for us because we're there's just going to be a lot of things we just do not really understand yeah you know because we we just haven't been to that we haven't done it yeah and my mind starts to think about what it would be like to drop someone into today's world from 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 500 years ago. How would they cope with what they're seeing? Would it just drive them a bit crazy? And how would we cope if we're taken into the future? And and I said earlier that it's probably easier for us to envision the future, especially than perhaps people in their little villages 500 years ago. But I still wonder how we would cope knowing that those things are happening when that's so completely different from our current experience. And I've just taken us on a massive tangent. But I think that's what listening to someone like Frank does. It opens you up to a bigger picture, perhaps, and takes your mind on thought processes that you haven't even considered. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. These are things that normally you never think about, you know, and normally, you know, my day-to-day -day thoughts are like, Stupid stuff like, what do I have to work do for work today? Is my car need an oil change? Yeah, what's yeah. for dinner? Is my car is my car okay? Yeah. Where's my birth certificate? You know? 
But it's important, and that's the whole that's the whole point of it. Is it's important to us in our bubbles. It's so important. Anyway, a couple of other things that really caught my attention in there. One, in his opening answer, he said he wrote to Werner von Braun. I know. And Werner von Braun wrote back. I mean, what's that all about? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. As one does. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, an amazing story. And another highlight for me in that interview was the bit about the explorer fish. I love that. I love that analogy of of. Uh, when you look back at human evolution and the fact that these fish and them going back into the uh, back into the water and being like, "Hey, there's this thing called land." I love that. That was so cool. Yeah. Which which also now gets me thinking that animals that have gone to space have they experienced an overview effect? How did they communicate it? Anyway, that's yeah. a whole other discussion that we could have at some yeah. point. <laughs> oh yeah, that is a mind blowing thought though. Yeah, because yeah, they must have had it at least a a sense they were not in a familiar spot. Absolutely. That's something to think about. Anyway, if you enjoyed that interview and you want to know more about Frank, please check out the links in our show notes, which you can find at spaceandthingspodcast.com, where there is an extensive archive of all our previous episodes and their show notes. Or you can just hit the link in the po- in your podcast provider underneath this episode. And of course, you can hear the full unedited episode over on our Patreon page and a bonus question, which isn't in the interview that you've just heard. So if you'd like to get involved with that, go over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. Are you over the moon about this podcast? It's not just a phase. You're listening to Space and Things. So Emily, what's caught your eye in space flight since last week? Well, a couple of stories. According to NASA, uh, this is a a finding I believe they found on the Mars uh, InSight lander, which is now defunct. It's no longer working. I believe it went out of of commission last year. But astronomers, and I'm reading this from a CNN article, have determined that the planet's spin is increasing about four milliarc seconds per year. Not milliseconds, milliarc seconds. What so, the hell? Exactly. So it's shortening the length of the Martian day by a fraction of a millisecond per year. So for some reason, Martian days are getting shorter. So the planet, it's speeding up a little bit per year. Um, so that's something that the Mars InSight lander has discovered, which to me is crazy. I don't know if this has any implications for uh, future mars exploration or anything like that obviously the united states and and other nations have uh spacecraft that have been sent up there so i'm sure this information needs to be taken into consideration you know in the future before we send other stuff up there you know in in terms of programming so that is one story i noticed this week that mars has has sped up a a slight amount i mean i I think milliard seconds for one thing, I was not familiar with that measure, that unit of measurement. I, I know milliseconds, but not milliarc seconds. So, uh, yeah, I was not even familiar that was a thing. So I, I, I will gladly admit that. And another story this week, and I'm going to try to not laugh as I get through this. I'm going to keep it kind of short. Um, the headline for this article is horrible, and I'm not going to read it because in lieu of the the great show we have this week, uh, that is really quite on a serious topic. Uh, NASA is asking for help to look at Neptune and Uranus. You can imagine what 
you can imagine the headline for this. And I, I was yeah. trying to be respectful and not read it that way. So um, I guess New Horizons, uh, the spacecraft that in 2015 looked at uh, Pluto and its moon for the, the really the first time ever, is now imaging Uranus and Neptune from, from a distance. And those are obviously the most far out gas giants in our solar system. So NASA is asking for amateur astronomers. It could be an astronomer with a you know, a 16-inch telescope. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a, a big planetarium or a big telescope at hand. But they're asking for help from amateur astronomers to uh, help image these planets in concert with the spacecraft. For those astronomers, I'm sure some of you listening are amateur astronomers and might have this equipment. Uh, those of you who choose to take part in this opportunity are asked to post any images they have acquired on X, which was Twitter, or on Facebook using the hashtag NHIceGiants, hashtag NHIceGiants, and uh, shared images should include the details on which uh, they were made, what filter pass bands. I'm reading this from a, a website called HotHardware.com, and once post and tag. Uh, New Horizons, the team will collect the images and any other supporting information. So that's if you are an amateur astronomer out there and, and if you want to take part in this, this is really a cool opportunity. It really caught my eye because I'm like, I think that's really cool. I don't think those planets can be viewed with the naked eye. I think you have to have some kind of telescope to, to view yeah. them because obviously they're so, they're a little ways out. They're not on, a, they're definitely not on 4th Street. That's for sure. Those are two things that caught my eye this week. So, Dave, what's caught your eye this week? I really enjoyed watching the Virgin Galactic launch, which had the, the first mother and daughter team and the first Olympian going to space, which happened last week. It was uh, Virgin Galactic's second commercial flight. So, yeah, that kind of links in with today's episode a little bit, which is pretty cool. Um, interesting to see that Russia have launched Luna 25, which is a moon yes. lander. It's their first lunar probe in 47 years. I noticed that I'm I'm interested to see if it'll work. I guess I I did read that it was supposed to land on one of the moon's poles, which is really cool because I don't think that's uh, a lander has been up that far. So we'll see. Uh, it looks like they're they're trying to discover water ice. We'll see, we'll see what they're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, it sounds like a episode of <laughs> episode of For All Mankind. There we go. Yeah, I'm like, great. Is this a is this what's happened? They've been watching that damn show is what's going on. They've been watching the show. All right. So, yeah, that, that that's happened. Also, some Russians did, did a space voice, but certainly Russia heavy in the news of, of space this week. There was a, they tested out the new robotic arm. It's a European robotic arm, which, which is on the Russian side of the space station. So, again, uh, the, the idea of everyone working with Russia in space still is, is still kind of interesting, given what's going on in the world and we may have an episode about that coming up. Anyway, also a cosmonaut, Alexander Viktorenko, who flew to Mir Station four times. He died at the age of 76 this last week as well. So fortunately, a sad note to end on from me. But um, anyone who flew to space four times and spent went on Mir must have had a... Uh, it's it's one of those crazy, how do I not know that name? I don't know anything about that I person. Know. So I've, I, I've read, uh, read the obit that, that uh, was on space.com and I will post that in the show notes and... Um, Hopefully, other people might yeah. want to do that as well. Yeah, and we send condolences. Yeah, absolutely. They would. That person would have had a lot of experiences 
like what we've oh, spoken yeah. about today. So um, it, it'd be lovely to know more about that person, uh, Alexander. So yeah, check out that obituary in uh, in the show notes. Ready to fly with the Space and Things crew? Go to patreon.com forward slash space and things to find out how to join. Right, thanks for listening this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast and hope you stick with us for the next few months. Let me tell you, the lineup for the next couple of months is really quite something. You can find out who and submit your questions to those guests by heading over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. And as we always say, thank you so much for sharing this podcast to your friends and family. It really does make a huge difference. Now, if you could be so kind as to leave us a review on your podcast platform, that would be wonderful. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean.